you have your Bibles or you want to follow along in the bulletin, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been going through the book of Corinthians. Some of these are some difficult passages. And there was some bad things cooking in Corinth. There was some bad theology, and Paul is, is correcting some of these bad things that were cooking. So maybe I should just tell you a couple of those things. When we read the text, you'll kind of get where Paul's getting at. But first one is that there was this cooking bad theology that was spreading that if you're married, well, it's just better to be celibate in marriage. And especially if you're married to an unbeliever, you could be contaminated, so you should just be celibate. Uh, bad theology, he's going to correct that. And if you're married to an unbeliever, as a you know, believer married to an unbeliever, better to get divorced and get free from your unbelieving spouse who may contaminate you. Bad theology again. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning of verse 6, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, as, my, as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? <clears throat> Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called you in the Lord as a, as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he has... He who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help, Lord, to understand uh, this passage. And there's some difficult things, and so we ask for extra uh, help. We ask that um, we would understand and discern what the Spirit is saying to the church, for each one of us individually, that we would grow and profit from this text and grow closer to you in following you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, let's just jump in. <laughs> we got a long, we got a lot to go through here. So verse 6 and 7, Paul is given a preference, a concession. He wishes that all were single like he is, but recognizing that each has his own gift. Some have the gift of celibacy and some uh, do not. And some have other gifts. And so if, you, if he's, he's saying if you have the gift of celibacy like he does, then you should remain single. And if not, then you should get married. Now we'll come back to what if God hasn't provided Mr. and Mrs. Wright yet, um, which is often the case. He doesn't address that. We'll get to that. Verse 8 and 9, he gives counsel to singles, unmarried, and widows. And, and he's saying it's good to remain single. But then he has this passage here where he says uh, that it's better to marry than to burn, is literally what, what the text is saying. And so I think the point, the instruction is pretty clear. If you're burning with passion and you desire to be married, then you should be looking to get married. Uh, if you don't have this gift, um, well, just a couple points of application here. One is, is if, you know, we take this text seriously that it's better to marry than to burn, and so people will get engaged, and then their engagement's like for a year or two. And it's like, wait a minute, the text is, is telling us something here. And I would just say as a, as a point of application, I don't think you should have a prolonged engagement, as that is often bringing more temptation into your life than otherwise. Paul is concerned about God's will. And if you remember what God's will is, the big thing that he's talking about is sexual immorality or fornication. And so when he says what matters is keeping the commandments of God, what he's really getting at is avoiding fornication. And so when the Bible talks about this is the will of God, your sanctification, it's that we should abstain from sexual immorality that each of us know how to control our own bodies in holiness and honor, not in a passion of lust like Gentiles, the Gentiles who do not know God. And I think sometimes it's good to, to read uh, the old documents of the faith to see where others have labored through things. And the, I'll just bring to your attention the Westminster Larger Catechism. There's two questions with the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. You say, okay. I haven't broken that commandment. Um, well, what are the duties required? This is what the reformers, as they worked this out, this Westminster Confession, this was in the 1640s in England. This is what they said. Here are the duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, conjugal love, cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness, and resisting temptations thereunto. So that's the duties. Then the next question is, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? Here we go. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of all the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lust, unclean, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, affections, 
all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibition of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, that was uh, prostitutes, or resorting to them, entangling vows of single life. This is vowing that you're going to be single when you don't have the gift. Undue delay of marriage. Having more wives or husbands than one at the same time. Unjust divorce or desertion. Idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage place, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. Pretty much the majority of what we see on TV is probably fitting into things forbidden here. A lot of things here, things that we need to give thought to as to the call to holiness and what Paul is addressing here. And so in verse 10 and 11, he gives counsel to married Christians in an era when divorce was a big problem, bigger than even today. Seneca, Seneca the Elder, he was a Roman writer and he was a contemporary of Jesus. He wrote from 54 BC, he lived from 54 to BC to 39 AD. And he lived through three Roman emperors. And he said about um, divorce in his day, he wrote this, that many women reckon the years by the number of their husbands. They leave home to marry and they marry in order to divorce. Sad state. And this is what Paul is dealing with. And so his counsel to the believers here, and he's talking about uh, both being believers, verse 10 and 11. Verse 12 to 16, he's going to deal with if one spouse is a believer and one's not. So he's dealing with different categories. So in 10 and 11, he's dealing with believers. And his counsel to believers is, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so as you kind of nuance these words, you got, you know, the words separate and then you have divorce. Well, they both have the same end game. And the reality was in that culture, the woman did not have the right to divorce. So the way that she would divorce was she'd pack her bags and, and, and she would walk and she would separate and it would lead to divorce. So it was, I think the words are used interchangeably here in verse 10 and 11. And, and what Paul is saying here is that if that's the case, then you shouldn't remarry, but that you should seek to be reconciled to your spouse. So let me give you kind of two stories, give you two stories to illustrate this kind of practical outworking, one bad, one good. So the bad example was when I was pastoring and assistant pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. I had a couple that wanted me to, to marry them and they were exploring different churches to uh, be married and, and we had renovated our sanctuary so it looked pretty nice. It looked like a good choice to, to do their, and they had been, you know, shopping at different churches, and because I was the low man on the totem pole, you know, I was assigned to meet with this couple, and because uh, they didn't go to our church, so I started to explore with them uh, their story, and their story was they had both been divorced previously, both were professing Christians when they had gotten divorced, neither had biblical grounds for divorce, meaning there hadn't been adultery or abandonment in either of their prior marriages, and their spouses had not remarried. 
I mean, it was as clear-cut as a clear-cut case that you should not remarry. And so here they are meeting with me to counsel, and I'm supposed to counsel them to get married. And my counsel to them was, not only should you not get married, but you should be seeking to reconcile with your spouses. And they were just, you know, they were aghast that this, you know, this young 30-year-old was telling them that this is what, and they're like, we've been to like 15 churches and nobody has suggested such a thing. Like, you know, who are you? Well, it, it didn't end well. And uh, it was funny, though, as they were leaving, they, all, they were wondering if they should pay me. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> and they got up, and that was the end of, of that. And I don't know what happened to them, but in that case, it was clear to me they should not be getting married because they didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. Therefore, they didn't have biblical grounds for remarriage. Now, here's a, a better story. Some of you remember, this is kind of cheesy, but the love boat. All right, for you 80s people out there, I won't sing the song for you. Exciting and new, come aboard, we're expecting you. Life's sweetest reward, let it flow, it floats back to you. The love boat soon will be making another run. The love boat promises something for everyone. Set a course for adventure, your mind on a new romance. Love won't hurt anymore, it's an open smile on a friendly shore. Yes, it's love. Some of you remember, those of you that can't remember, don't go look that up. It was, <clears throat> well, the captain of the ship was Captain Merrill Steubing, okay? Gavin McLeod is his real name. And so Gavin, being the captain of the love boat, he selfishly divorced his wife. And this was in the early 80s. Both were unbelievers. She starts going to a Bible study and she gets saved by the influence of Jerry Lewis's first wife. And through a prayer group at her church, they began to pray for Gavin. And Gavin gets saved. And now they're both saved. He calls her and they get remarried and they've been married ever since and they're in their 80s now. And Mr. Loveboat uh, loves exciting and new. It really did come true for him. And uh, so sometimes the, you don't know how the Lord may work in reconciling a marriage like he did there. Wonderful story. All right, moving along. So verses 12 to 16, Paul, he says, and this trips some people up. He says, not I, but the Lord. And so people are like, wait a minute. Paul's, you know, is he speaking as a suggestion here? And the answer is No. What Paul is saying is everything I've told you before has either been said by the Lord Jesus himself or is in other revealed revelation in the Old Testament. But since there isn't anything on this subject, I am telling you this as an apostle of Jesus Christ with authority, same authority. So don't get tripped up by that not I but the Lord thing, okay? That is, it hasn't been said before by Jesus, but now I am saying this apostle with authority, Okay, that if an unbeliever and a believer are married, and if the husband is a believer or vice versa, there's, and, and the idea is that, you know, if there's some type of, of fear of contamination, Paul is wanting to clear that up. He's saying the believing spouse is bringing the family into covenant privileges and blessings that also fall now onto the unbelieving spouse and the children. Doesn't mean that they are saved. It means that they're regarded as set apart 
and under the umbrella of God's blessings. There is a tough passage, and I'm giving you my best take on it, okay? And if you read 50 different commentators, you'd probably get 40 different answers. But what I think is that Paul is correcting what was in Ezra, if you remember in the book of Ezra in chapter 9, the Israelites had intermarried with the foreigners upon returning from exile. And the leaders came to Ezra and informed them that some have taken of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. The holy seed is now contaminated. And you know what the book of Ezra actually had them do? I mean, Ezra actually consulted them to put away their wives. Paul is saying, don't do that. The clearer light now in the New Testament is, you know, that Ezra thing was, that was a, an exception to the norm. The rule is 1 Corinthians 7. And so the holy seed is God's set-apart people. And the holy seed was referring to the Israelites in the Old Testament. They were set apart as holy and covenant with the Lord when they had received the sign of the covenant of circumcision. And so those who were uncircumcised and outside of the covenant would have been considered unclean, and they were considered to be a mixing of the holy seed. And what Paul is saying now, as he brings this uh, into the, the New Testament, is what Paul is saying is that mixed marriages now have the same status as Christian marriages and should not be abandoned. Continuing their marriage accords with God's design for marriage and it should be hallowed just as, like a Christian marriage is, just as two believers in a sphere in which God's holiness and his transforming power operate. And the interesting thing that I've, I've seen over, you know, I'm not a kid anymore, is that in a lot of these situations where I've seen a believer and an unbeliever and they stay together, is that the children that are called holy in this text more often than not, and usually overwhelmingly so, the children have become believers, and from what I've seen in my experience. And so, stay married, raise your children as best you can in a mixed marriage with a believer and an unbeliever. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. And the idea here is, don't try to stop something you can't stop. This is an imperative of toleration when you're dealing with an fait accompli. Like this person's going to walk and all you're doing is, is you know, trying to, to stick a stick in, into the spokes of this bicycle that's already moving in a direction that you can't stop. And what he's saying is, is you, know, you want to do everything you can to save your marriage, but if your unbelieving spouse is determined to walk, then you let them walk. And he says, in this case, you're not enslaved. And the idea of being enslaved is that you're not bound to your marriage vows. You're free to divorce with biblical grounds for divorce. And I would also say that you would be free to remarry. Now, we've had some difficult shepherding instances over the years in our church where we've had uh, a believing spouse who thought that they were married to a believing spouse, and over the course of time, one spouse proved to be an unbeliever. And those were some difficult things, and... The way that they proved themselves to be an unbeliever is they refused counseling. They refused to listen to biblical truth. They didn't care about what Jesus said about divorce in Matthew 19. They, it was, that was not the Jesus they were worshiping. 
But they would tell you they're worshiping Jesus, but the Jesus that they were worshiping was the Jesus they had made in their own image. And so in a few of these cases, the elders have had to stand with the believer, and when the unbelieving spouse walked, we affirmed the believer, loved them and counseled them, and supported them in a biblical divorce, and and even encouraged biblical grounds for remarriage. And so, have you ever seen one of those TV commercials at the bottom that says, don't try this at home? Um, I would say that in one sense that applies here, meaning um, this is where it's really important to be a member of a church and to have elders uh, that you can reach out to and that will come alongside you. You don't do this in a vacuum. You know, I mean, I've heard the craziest counsel. You know, I had a lady once tell me that, that she was reading about, about Abram and Lot and how it was better for them to separate. And so she was convinced she had biblical grounds for divorce based on Genesis 13. I'm like, uh, no. But people, you know, you can deceive yourself to just about anything. And so the idea is you want real elders when there's a real mess who are going to roll up their sleeves, weigh into the mess, and if a judgment has to be cast, you are not alone. And so many have claimed to have biblical grounds for divorce, but don't have elders in agreement with them. And this is where the Westminster Confession, again, is, is helpful. Chapter 24 is a whole chapter in the Westminster Confession on divorce. Uh, Divorce, remarriage, marriage. 24.6 says this. Although the corruption of man be such, as is apt to study arguments unduly to, to put asunder those whom God has joined together in marriage. So he's saying the corruption of man is such that he is going to look for arguments and he's going to study unduly to find an escape clause to get out of his marriage. There's going to be people that are going to do that. They're going to try and put asunder what God has joined together in marriage. Yet, nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and disorderly course of proceeding is to be observed. Public, orderly, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills or discretion in their own case. You see, don't try this at home. You know, get help. And the idea is that these things should be handled publicly by the elders. All right, difficult passage. So, verse 16, I think what Paul is is getting at here, and and this is debatable because people take this either positively or negatively. And it says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Well, some will take this verse to say, see, you should stay in your marriage, and and who knows whether you're going to win them. But the preceding verse is let them walk, and you're not enslaved. I take it as he's, he's saying, how do you know whether you're going to save your husband? Like you think, well, I've got to stay in this, even though you know, they're wanting to walk, but I'm going to win them. And Paul is saying, well, what makes you so confident that you're going to win them? How do you know whether you're going to save your spouse? How do you know you're going to save, uh, you know, your wife or your husband? And so what I see Paul is saying is, is leave it to the Lord. Lord, Let the Lord deal with them, and you are not enslaved if they walk. Now, verses 17 to 24 get to the heart of the matter. And you've always heard the heart of the matter. Is always the heart of the matter. And so Paul's point here 
is to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you. And so the important thing for us to figure out is what is our assignment? And the word call or called is used eight times in verses 17 to 24. God didn't call you to himself because you did something extra before you got called. You didn't make yourself something extra special like getting circumcised or getting yourself out of being a, a slave, improving your social status, and improving your ethnicity. God's call is not based on your status in life. Whether you're single, married, free, slave, circumcised, not circumcised, Jew or Gentile, God didn't call you based on that. The Bible says he called you because he loved you and he chose you before the foundation of the world. Therefore, that's why he's called you. So if that's how he called you, now that you've been called, why are you trying to do something he's saying to improve your status? Like this is gonna get you some extra points or something with God? Like is this you know, gonna change you know, how God views you or how other people are gonna view you? What are you doing worried about what other people think about anyway? So be content with your calling and blossom where you're planted. Now, so don't take this, you know, I mean, if, if you're in an extreme situation, you know, if you're in a gang when called, I don't think it means, you know, stay in the gang, you know. If you're, if you're, <clears throat> if you're in the mafia, <clears throat> or, you know, you're in some immoral or illegal activity and you've been called, you know, and you say, well, I'm going to remain in the state in which I'm called, um, I don't think so. Because what qualifies it is verse 19. And what matters is what? It's not circumcision or uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And so whether you have uh, some outward mark of being holy, circumcision, that doesn't matter anymore. And the idea here is that we're not to elevate one culture over another. And if you think you're a Jew and you're more special because you're circumcised over a Gentile, it's like if you think you're, if you're white, that that is a better culture, or if you're black, you think that's a better culture, or if you're Asian or Hispanic, remain in the state in which you were called. So if you're a Jew, don't try to become a Gentile. If you're a Gentile now, don't try to become a Jew. There's not one, we don't elevate any culture over another thinking one is more godly in the sight of God. That's what he's getting at. Now, <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, I mean, I do think this principle here is that remain in the state in which you're called. There is this element that when people get saved, they get excited and, and they kind of go through the, 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 the rage stage or the cage stage where they're, they're excited, but they're like aghast by the things that they're now seeing. All of a sudden their eyes are opened and they just can't believe how filthy their company is, how corrupt their company is, how everything is mismanagement and ungodliness. And, and it's a fallen world we live in. And Paul is dealing with, if you look at this passage, everything he's dealing with is, is mop up. Like how do we mop this up when, we, when we've got people that are single and they want to be married and people that are married and want to be divorced and people that are married and, one, and now one's become a believer and one isn't. And how do, we, how do we live in those situations? He's saying, remain in the state in which you were called. And so often people want to jump and vacillate and get out of where God has put them. And God has put, you know, we prayed today for people in the medical field. Praise God for these people that are in the, in the medical field. And I'm sure that's a difficult field. And you work in the government. That's a difficult field. And there's challenges. Every single job that has, you know, there, there are challenges that come with it. But 
Be thankful that God has put you there and seek to make the most of him and honor him in that calling. And so what he's saying here is that, you know, if you're, if you're a slave when called, and keep in mind, that's, that's far from slavery as what happened in America that was kidnapping. That's not what we're talking about here. In the Roman culture, a third of the, third of the of Roman Empire was enslaved to the other part of the empire. So slavery was extremely common. And he's saying, if you can, don't, don't, he's big, don't make a big deal about that. But he's saying, if you can get yourself free, the reality is if you were a slave, you couldn't free yourself. Only the master could free you. So if he gives you the opportunity and gives you walking papers, great. And Paul is also using that to come back to say, look, you that are married, don't be seeking to get divorced. But if the unbeliever walks, then let him walk. But you remain in your calling. And the idea is blossom where you're planted. And I would say for us, everybody has a cross to carry. Everybody here in this room deals with something where God says remain in the state in which you're called and you can think of an application where this would apply to you. Elizabeth Elliot once said, she's with the Lord now, great missionary, she said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. But we like to think the second half. It's the first half. I had the privilege yesterday to have one of the best seats in the house. It's a small wedding, but Mary and Terry got married yesterday. And, And some of you that have known Mary, you know, her husband left the picture some 16 years ago. And she has just been faithful, raising five children without a dad. And she's honored the Lord in that. And she's been a faithful worker, and she's just waited on the Lord. If the Lord should ever have her find someone, well, she found someone. And God brought Terry into the picture, and he's a godly man, loves the Lord. But I had the privilege, I love being, as a pastor, you get to look at the groom when the bride's coming down, because that's like the best part, because you're just applying Isaiah 62.5. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so does the Lord rejoice over you. Get a good picture. And I just sat and watched him as the tears filled up and started coming down his eyes. And, and Mary, just one step at a time, came down the stairs. And it was just anticipation, anticipation. It was beautiful. Of Here is someone that she blossomed where she was planted. She wanted to be married, but she knew that it wasn't ready yet. The Lord hadn't provided, so she waited, and the Lord provided. Well, not every story ends quite like that. But the Lord is enough for us, and he gives us the grace that we need for each of our situations in life. And so wherever God has put you, I want to counsel you to blossom where you're planted. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit now that you would apply these very truths. Lord, as we follow your Lordship, that we take this yoke upon us and deny ourselves and follow you. We thank you, Lord, for your remaining and your calling to humble yourself, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And how we praise you that it was to atone for all of our sins, 
past, present, and future. And so, Lord, we look to you in faith. Lord, help us to be obedient and to trust you in the difficult circumstances that often arise. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.